0: Hey listeners, Rewire is a non-profit publication, which means that funding for our work comes from you. If you like what you're listening to, please become a donor today and support our reporting, commentary, investigations, and podcasts like Choiceless. Go to rewire.news December to make a donation. Now, on to our special two-part season finale of Choiceless.
1: Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and
2: blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. We're
0: outside a Planned Parenthood in Indianapolis in early November. Crowds of protesters stand on each side of the driveway, holding signs with graphic images of fetal remains. Some of them are praying. They have a PA system set up, and one man holds the microphone up to his cell phone where he's playing audio of a baby crying. So uh,
3: I think it's important for those mothers in there, and you are mothers, to understand it. if that little one could speak, what's she saying?
0: There are people of all ages crowding in front of this abortion clinic. A young couple stands together at the entrance of the parking lot, greeting people as they drive in. They're holding their newborn infant, still pink and wrinkly, and barely opening their eyes. I start talking to two of its members, Cal Zastro and his 19-year-old daughter, Eva, about their support and volunteer work for former Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore's U.S. Senate campaign.
2: I can't speak for Operation Safe America, but a bunch of folks from there, and also the leadership, Rusty and them, and former leader, Benham. whenever um, Chief Justice Roy Moore was uh, needing support or encouragement or something, we did what we could to cheer him on.
0: Eva, do you think that Roy Moore, uh, that there is something that has changed in the United States that has allowed for Roy Moore to
4: become a mainstream candidate? I don't know exactly. I I wouldn't say I see a large change. I just, the people that know what he stands for, they're voting for him. Alabama is voting for him. He won the primary. So We'll see if he wins. And if he does, it's not going to be because he lied to a bunch of people and told them what they wanted to hear. It's because he spoke God's truth and people wanted that. So,
0: This conversation was recorded less than a week before the Washington Post published the allegations that Moore initiated a sexual encounter with a 14-year-old girl when he was 32. Eight more women have come forward with allegations ranging from unwanted advances to sexual assault. Those allegations cost Roy Moore his election to the U.S. Senate. But if they hadn't been brought forward, he was a virtual lock to become one of the most powerful people in the country. And even after the allegations came out, his evangelical base stood by him. Here's what Cal had to say when I called him to discuss the alleged abuse.
1: He, he's, had, he's had so many allegations and so many false allegations and so much stuff thrown at him for years, for decades.
0: But if somebody's had that many allegations thrown at them, do you at some point think that maybe it could be true?
1: No, not at all. The more allegations, the more false allegations, the more honorable the man is.
0: Members of Operation Save America support Moore because they share his values. They believe that U.S. law should more closely align with the laws of a conservative, literal reading of the Bible, that it should be a country much more similar to Gilead in the dystopian novel The Handmaid's Tale than a modern democracy. Roy Moore is not the only politician who aligns with Operation Save America. My colleague Sophia Resnick is joining me for this special two-part season finale of Choiceless. We'll look at how an organization, which includes some members who were once viewed as so extreme, the FBI was investigating them for a violent conspiracy, now has its message deeply embedded in the mainstream political landscape. For Rewire Radio, I'm Jen Stanley. And I'm Sophia Resnick. And this is Marching Toward Gilead, a story about a radical group with rising influence and the world they want us all to live in. We'll explain the history of the group and how we got to where we are today. We'll talk to current and former members about the organization's tactics and goals, and we'll take you through their summer of actions in Kentucky as they happened and explore how those actions reveal a larger plan. We'll speak with and about lawmakers who have become a part of their movement. And in the end, we think this will paint a pretty clear picture of how extremism can go mainstream and what our lives might look like if Operation Save America continues to gain ground. Okay, Sophia, so Roy Moore really threw a wrench in the story we've been working on.
5: Yeah, I mean, even though he didn't win, the fact that he would've but for this sexual assault scandal, I think it makes our story all the more relevant to people's daily lives. I mean, basically this started out as a story about abortion access and a fringe group, right?
0: Right. I was originally working on a story about the last abortion clinic in Kentucky and efforts by the state and religious activists to shut it down. This right-wing anti-abortion group, Operation Safe America, had scheduled its national conference in Louisville, Kentucky, the home of the state's only remaining abortion clinic, EMW Women's Surgical Center. The group had already been amping up protests outside the clinic, putting pressure on them to close, but then in May, Operation Safe America did something that made it seem like the group was returning to its old tactics, and maybe even challenging the Department of Justice. So, I asked Sophia what her take on this was, and if she'd be interested in doing Doing the story with me. Sophia is an investigative reporter for Rewire, who has studied the Christian right movement for years now.
5: Yeah, so I'd actually written about Operation Save America in the past, and I've always understood them to be on the outer fringes of the movement. But so I reached out to one of my trusted sources, the Reverend Patrick Mahoney. He goes by Pat. And back in the late 80s, he was the communications director for Operation Rescue, which would eventually split over philosophical differences, leading to what is now Operation Save America. But a little more on that later. Anyway, Jen, when you and I started realizing that more than a few politicians at the state and federal level have been meeting with this group and embracing some of their ideas, I went to Pat and asked him his take on this. And I I was surprised. He basically scoffed at the idea that Operation Save America wields any real influence. He said they're very much just a fringe group, even among the pro-lifers he's friends with he said they have no mainstream influence and that nobody takes them seriously.
0: Yeah, but that's not really what we found. See, Roy Moore is in many ways a would-be messiah for the fundamentalist Christian movement. Since the beginning of his political career, Roy Moore has challenged the separation of church and state that our country was founded upon, and not just slightly occasionally challenged it, but systematically challenged it, and grandly. At the height of Roy Moore's career, during his first stint as the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, he ordered a -a two-and-a-half-ton monument depicting the Ten Commandments in the rotunda of the Alabama Judicial Building. When he refused to remove it, he was thrown off the court. But then less than a decade later, in 2012, Alabama re-elected him to the court, only to see him ousted prematurely again in 2016, this time for defying the new Supreme Court ruling finding same-sex marriage protected under federal law. In the eyes of Operation Save America, Moore has risked his career on fundamentalist Christian ideals. His political career is basically an embodiment of everything Operation Save America wants for this country. So today we're looking at one of the groups who have tirelessly supported Roy Moore. In the past year, Operation Save America has found its way back to national prominence. But what other news outlets are missing is that they don't just want to close down a bunch of abortion clinics. They want to usher in an American theocracy. But it's complicated, and before you understand any of that, you need to understand where they came from and who they are. So, hang on. We're going on kind of a deep dive into the past, but I promise the history lesson is going to be worth it so you can understand exactly why it matters that Operation Save America is getting its hooks in mainstream politics.
6: My name's Duvern Gaines. I direct the National Clinic Access Project for the Feminist Majority Foundation. And the Feminist Majority Foundation is a wide-ranging national women's rights organization devoted to achieving the social, political, and economic equality of uh, women um, worldwide, no small task. And we were founded in 1987 And shortly thereafter, the National Clinic Access Project began. And it really grew out of, um, you know, at that time, a a group known as Operation Rescue was uh, organizing blockades against women's health care providers, abortion clinics.
0: They would chain themselves to the clinics physically blockading the entrance, attempting to stop people from having abortions. Or as they put it, rescuing babies. Right, that's where the name Operation Rescue comes from. By the early 90s, they were down to a group of very dedicated professional rescuers who lived off donations. And in 1991, they garnered national attention when thousands of protesters descended on Wichita, Kansas, staging sit-ins and blockading clinic entrances. They called it the Summer of Mercy, And while they were protesting abortion generally, they honed in on Dr. George Tiller's clinic. At the time, Tiller was one of the most vilified abortion providers out there, hated especially because he was one of the few to offer abortions late into pregnancy. A rare occurrence, but one that is sometimes sought because of extreme health circumstances related to the fetus or the pregnant person. Two years after the Summer of Mercy protests, a violent extremist shot Tiller in both of his arms, but only injured him. Then, in 2009, a different activist shot him again, this time fatally. The Summer of Mercy lasted six weeks, during which approximately 2,600 people were arrested for blockading clinics, among other activities. But they continued these kinds of protests all over the country. Here's Catherine Brightbill. She grew up in Florida and was raised to be part of these rescues as a child during the late 80s and early 90s.
7: A family that was in our homeschool group, they were the youth leaders for Operation Rescue in the late 80s and the 90s. Uh, And so they led um, work here in... um, Sarasota Bradenton area, and just through being friends with them, they kind of encouraged us to get involved. Uh, We started out by doing protesting at the abortion Clinic in Sarasota, um, Sarasota Women's Health Center, which is now closed, and also um, doing what's called sidewalk counseling, where people try to hand out information and offer options for women who are going in to have abortions
1: the first
7: and, degree, that's
3: what it is.
7: and then from there we ended up going to operation rescue national events and um, were involved in where i was arrested the first time i was 12 years old blocking abortion clinic arrested for violating a protest buffer zone injunction and for protesting without a permit in Birmingham, Alabama.
0: Catherine was so present in the movement that a photo of her kneeling in front of an abortion clinic and awaiting arrest is the cover of one of Rusty Thomas's books. The Reverend Rusty Thomas is the current leader of Operation Save America. Now, it's not uncommon for children to be so active in these protests. They're definitely on the front lines of this movement.
7: At the time, it was like a kind of really exciting experience as we believed that we were doing something that was important, that was saving lives, and that we were going to be the people who were going to change society. Um, and it was framed very much as a continuation of the civil rights movement. That's how they kind of got um, us involved and convinced that what we were doing was right as they saw, they told us we were kind of the heirs of the civil rights movement, which um, in later years they realized that they, that was all just rhetoric that they gave us, but as a um, middle schooler that all sounded like I was yet doing something important and changing the world. um, What I remember when we went to lobby against a buffer zone law that was um, being proposed in Florida in the mid-90s, they had some of the people who were lobbying make arguments that um, bring up animal rights activism and argue that the buffer zone laws would hurt militant animal rights activists who were protesting at um, lab testing and so they kind of posed so some people were posing themselves as animal rights activists um, and making those arguments some people were posing themselves as just like the good Christian um, I, I, I was about 13 at the time, I played kind of the role of, I'm this cute kid who you're going to make a felon if you pass this bill. So they'll frame it in whatever way works and plays with legislators who they're speaking to.
0: Operation Rescue maintained that it was nonviolent, but their protests and protests by similar groups sometimes attracted extreme and violent activists who believed it was their duty to kill abortion providers in order to rescue babies. In 1993, a man named Michael Griffin killed Dr. David Gunn. That was the first known murder of an abortion provider in the United States. Again, Catherine Brightbill.
7: My feelings about that are very much shaped by that was actually the day that David Gunn was murdered in Pensacola, which we didn't know at the time that that uh, murder had happened. And actually, Wendy Wright, who at the time was the communications director for operation rescue who then went on to um head up concerned women for america for a number of years i'm not sure what she's doing now but she um called a press conference where a number of us spoke to bank of cameras arguing why this bill um shouldn't be passed and i got up in front of the cameras playing the cute um teenager role um arguing that this law was going to turn me into a felon, and I found out later that Wendy Wright actually was aware that David Gunn had been murdered in Pensacola um, several hours before, but she sent us out in front of the cameras to argue that the pro-life movement was non-violent, knowing that that was a lie. Um, But we didn't know that was a lie. So in retrospect, I felt very betrayed by that, but... At the time, as it was happening, it was this um, kind of exciting thing because we thought we were changing the world.
0: Wendy Wright disputed Catherine's account of the events that happened on March 10th, 1993, saying that she spoke on another day, and even if she did speak on March 10th, by the time Catherine would have spoken, everyone would have known about the murder already. However, Catherine's mother and sister both corroborated her story, saying they remember it the way that she does. A man named Paul Hill then penned what he called a defensive action statement in support of Michael Griffin, gun's murderer. It said that Griffin should be acquitted of all charges against him because the murder was justified as it was in defense of the unborn. 31 pro-lifers signed it, including people who had ties to Operation Rescue. While anti-abortion activists were doing that, on the other side, abortion rights activists lobbied the federal government to do something about the violence at reproductive health clinics. In response to the escalating violence, then-President Bill Clinton signed the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances, or FACE Act, which, among other things, made it a felony to obstruct the entrance to an abortion clinic or to intimidate or attempt to injure someone entering an abortion clinic. The FACE Act made many of Operation Rescue's activities federal crimes. And remember Paul Hill, the anti-abortion activist who in 1993 wrote the defensive action statement? Well, clearly his statement wasn't just theoretical for him, because the following year he murdered Dr. John Britton, the abortion provider who had taken Gunn's place, along with his bodyguard, James Barrett. Many pro-life organizations, including Operation Rescue, maintained that the movement was nonviolent. But the public was associating their brand of in-your-face activism with the increasing violence. Plus, the FACE Act was leading to more arrests and bigger fines, and it was becoming financially impossible to keep the same course. Again, Catherine Brightbill.
7: Leaders from around the movement, um, different organizations, met in uh, Melbourne Palm Bay, Florida to plan out a strategy and at that meeting, that was when Keith Tucci stepped down as the head of Operation Rescue. Um, and from what I understand, from what people told me at the time, there was a kind of power struggle as to who was going to lead the movement. There's a lot of the, a lot of the figures who did argue for justifiable homicide and use of force were at that meeting. And from what I understand, Flip Benham. Um, got control of leadership and marginalized that wing of the movement. And looking back, I would say that meeting, if it had gone differently and if that wing of the entire movement had um, gained control of Operation Rescue at that meeting, that the 90s very likely could have turned into a full-blown, like the movement could have turned into a full-blown terrorist movement and the 90s could have gotten very bloody very fast.
0: So, as Catherine notes, Philip Benham, who goes by Flip, takes over the leadership of the group. He decides they should distance themselves from the violence and take it easy on the rescues. So they change her name to Operation Save America and expand their focus to other things he considers ungodly, like homosexuality and Islam. Again, Duverne Gaines.
6: particular group is... is an offshoot of Operation Rescue, they they adopted a different name really to escape a uh, legal judgment against Operation Rescue and Flip Benham, who had assumed the the mantle as the national leader of the of Operation Rescue. But he so stalked and terrorized a provider in Texas that that provider was able to achieve a um, substantial judgment against Benham and. Um, Operation Rescue. So therefore, he he moves ultimately to the Charlotte, North Carolina area, and um, begins to use a different name, Monica Operation Save America, um, uh, and really the individuals associated with this group. Um, you know, to give you an example, after Doctor uh, Tiller was murdered in. Wichita, Kansas in 2009, it was Flip Benham, then president or director of Operation Save America, that began immediately using wanted style posters to target Charlotte area physicians. And um, we know what those are. Those are essentially putting targets on a physician's back and really an invitation um, to potential violence, an open declaring an open season against a They distribute these flyers in the neighborhoods of the physicians. In the case of Charlotte, they went to the h- hospitals, uh, the private offices, OBGYN offices of uh, physicians, in addition to their neighborhoods and littering those neighborhoods and going up to houses and harassing neighbors as well as. Um, the independent individual physician's home and going to the clinic where they work and, and distributing them there. They actually went so far as to go inside the private OBGYN offices of um, abortion providers in Charlotte and try to tap out those leaflets in the waiting room. And that's, you know, this is extreme conduct. This is
0: what we would call, um, we believe to be stalking. When Catherine finished home school, she attended Covenant College, which, according to its website, is the official college of the Presbyterian Church of America, or PCA, as Catherine refers to it here. And it's in college that she starts questioning some of what she was taught through Operation Rescue um, in her church. I was
7: question- sorry, questioning whether that kind of very aggressive militant activism was a good idea and also started becoming aware of kind of the broader political context that they were operating in that I wasn't aware of at the time. I wasn't aware at the time that the leaders of the movement were believing in kind of a hardcore theocratic view of um, the Christians' role in government and the idea that christians should take over government and usher in kind of a christian theocracy i wasn't i didn't have the framework as a teenager to to recognize that that's what they were advocating for but then in college going to a um the pca's university and studying um about the theonomy christian reconstructionism and recognizing that this was what was being advocated for in the circles that I was in. Uh, I think people need to be aware of that broader goal that the end goal isn't just ending abortion. The end goal is implementing a Christian government not terribly different from like Christian equivalent of the government of Iran or Saudi Arabia. That's their end goal and they will frame their arguments in ways that will play with particular legislators at that time on that particular issue, but the end goal is always and is still the implementing kind of a Christian theocracy.
0: But she also doesn't think they have a chance of accomplishing that goal. She starts questioning church teachings, particularly on the issue of homosexuality, and kind of does a 180. She goes from supporting the Republican Party to volunteering for Barack Obama in 08. She's a big supporter of marriage equality, and she kind of loses touch with Operation Save America and their movement. She checks in from time to time. She still has family involved, but it's not her way of life. In 2014, Flip Benham steps down as director of OSA. Again, Duvern Gaines.
6: Rusty Thomas took over Operation Save America um, and the leadership of the organization in 2014. And he, I believe, has taken it to a new, more radical, more concerning level of uh, openly associating and bringing into the fold of Operation Save America's leadership a man by the name of Matthew Truella.
0: This signifies a big shift in the movement because Matt Trujella is part of the more extreme wing that Flip Benham tried to marginalize. He and other signatories of the statement defending the murderous actions of Michael Griffin were the subjects of a federal investigation for conspiracy to use violence to influence politics. So Sophia and I called her source, Reverend Pat Mahoney, to get his take on Matt and the potential changes in the group. Pat used to be the national media director for Operation Rescue, but he distanced himself from the group when Flip Benham took it in an anti-Muslim, anti-LGBTQ direction, though Pat is also quick to say that he still respects and likes Flip, and he gives Flip credit for disavowing violence against abortion providers. Right. Well, I think what
1: Matt would believe, are you familiar with the term Reconstructionist? Reconstructionalist, in essence, well, it's, it's kind of a complicated thing, but in essence, believe that the principles of the Old Testament and law, unless there are changed in the New Testament, should apply to current culture today. So I think where where Matt, and again, I never want to put words in people's mouths, but I think when he looks at the lesser magistrate, the lens that he would look through would be that of, of the Bible. And the Bible in, you know, in... Um, in his interpretation.
0: So Matt Truella believes in a literal interpretation of biblical law and thinks that those laws should be implemented at the national level. In 2013, he self-published a book about it called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate, which we'll talk more about later, but it basically encourages legislators and civil servants, or lesser magistrates, to defy the federal government in order to bring about a more Christian nation. Think Kim Davis, a hero of Operation Save Americas. She's the Kentucky County clerk who in 2015 defied a federal court order to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples and spent a few days in jail for it. Right. So Matruella, he was also one of the people
5: who signed this defensive action statement, which effectively argued that killing abortion providers is quote-unquote justifiable homicide. And that's why Flip Benham marginalized him from their group. But when Rusty takes over Operation Save America's leadership, he continues Flip's focus on the anti-LGBT, anti-Muslim activism, but he also becomes even more politically focused. And he likes what Matt has to say about the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. So he brings Matt back into the fold, and he starts championing his book. He thinks that the Supreme Court is tyrannical for upholding abortion rights and marriage equality. And he also thinks that if politicians are truly Christian and pro-life, that they should ignore these
0: laws. And so this is kind of where Roy Moore comes in. Moore very much believes that a conservative, literal interpretation of biblical law should be applied to our federal government. The Ten Commandments in the courtroom is a signal of that. And when he's removed from the court, Operation Save America under Flip Benham's leadership are still supporting him. In 2013, Moore gets reelected to Chief Justice. But in 2016, after the decision in the landmark Supreme Court case, Obergefell v. Hodges establishes marriage equality, Moore tells his judges to ignore it and not to honor same-sex marriages. And he's removed again.
5: Right. So at this point, Rusty Thomas is the director of Operation Save America. And he sees this as a lesser magistrate interposing between God and the federal government in the name of upholding God's law. Because to Rusty and to Roy Moore, homosexuality is one of the greatest sins. So Rusty gives him an award.
3: And this plaque actually is a godly statesman award presented to Chief Justice Roy Moore. Now, folks, can we gather around the Chief Justice really quick? Because he's got a lot to share. I wanna gather around and we want to pray for Chief Justice Roy Moore father we thank you for the example of chief justice roy moore and lord we pray that you use this dear brother to set an example for lesser magistrates throughout the united states of america that it's time to say no to the federal beast in jesus name and lord i thank you father god for his example and we pray your blessings upon him his marriage his children his grandchildren my god and thank you for the heritage lord that he leaves for his family and for this city and for this state and for our nation oh god lord bless him we pray and continue to use him oh god in jesus mighty name and the saints said amen and amen
5: during his Operation Rescue Days, Reverend Pat Mahoney had been in jail with Rusty Thomas and Flip Benham, and here's what he has to say about the group I now. don't work
1: with Operation Save America. Um, I, I wouldn't speak at one of their events. Why not? Well, um, perhaps the, the main reason would be um, I do um, strong um, bridge building with the Muslim community, with the Islamic community. And, um, OSA in the past at their events have burned pages of the Quran, have been very direct, condemning, um, Muslims, uh, in general, and there is just no way that I could ever work with that as much as, you know, I love Rusty and talk with him and share with him on things, uh, Not so much recently, but in the past.
0: You said you were in jail with... Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah. Over the years with Operation Rescue and others, sure. Uh Uh-huh. And so you get a chance to talk about family. Uh, My wife was very much involved in praying for Rusty's first wife um, when she had her battle, uh, which tragically ended, um, ended up taking her life way too soon. Kendra... His current wife—it's kind of interesting. She has the same last name that I do, Kendra Mahoney, and she—Kendra actually worked for me when I was in when she was here in D.C. Um, so I, I think I think that what happens sometimes is that when you do these rallies and you do events, there is a tendency to maybe have that side of your personality be the dominant side. So I I would say for Rusty, the general public, (laughs) particularly those that, you know, saw the recent event in Kentucky that they had um, this past summer, would view Rusty as kind of um, a cowboy-esque militant kind of person. And um, I don't... I can see where people might have that view of him, but um, I see Rusty through a different light also.
0: The recent events Reverend Mahoney is referring to is the week of protests this past summer that were planned to put pressure on EMW Women's Surgical Center to close, the event that drew me to the story in the first place. Here's Rusty Thomas addressing his followers on their opening night rally.
3: send us forth into the harvest field for they are certainly ripe unto harvest. Father, there's those in this room right now who are lost. They're walking in darkness. They don't know you. They're outside the faith. They have no hope in this world nor in the world to come. Oh God, reveal yourself. Lord, draw people
0: so we're just sitting with the rest of the congregation here. The church is packed, but it seems like most of the people there, at least as far as I can tell, are members of Operation Save America. So I'm pretty sure at this moment he's talking about us, but there could have been people undercover, or he could have just assumed that there were pro-choice protesters in the audience. Pat Mahoney describes Rusty as cowboy-esque, and I think that's a pretty good description. He's almost always in a cowboy hat and boots, wearing jeans and a button-down shirt. But, Sophia, you had a really good description of Rusty when we first saw him. Do you remember?
5: Yeah, for me, I think he's a dead ringer for Walter White from Breaking Bad, only in cowboy form. You have bid us to come to Louisville,
3: Kentucky for such a time as this. And we know even now that the eyes of the world literally are upon Louisville, Kentucky for such a time as this. Father, you have created an incredible scenario, Lord, that we could not, we couldn't make this up, we couldn't write the script, and yet it is happening in our midst, oh God. And Father, we don't want to miss one iota of your precious will, and so we bow before you, our King.
0: Nearly every summer since 1991, Summer of Mercy, when Operation Rescue descended on Wichita, Kansas... Operation Save America has held a national event where they perform similar activities, protesting at abortion clinics, showing up in public squares with graphic anti-abortion posters, and picketing and outing abortion providers outside of their homes. This year's event was called Such a Time as This, because Rusty Thomas, now the leader of the group, feels that we are at a special time in history in which Roe v. Wade could be overturned. Our desire
3: is not just that Kentucky be the first that will be. Father, our desire is that the name of Jesus Christ be exalted in all the earth.
0: Kentucky is one of a handful of states with only one clinic left. And Rusty wants the GOP-dominated legislature to ignore the federal government and just make abortion illegal. On Mother's Day weekend, two months before Operation Save America's national event in July, Rusty and 10 of his followers blocked the front entrance of the MW Women's Surgical Center. It was their first staged rescue at an abortion clinic in over two decades, and it brought a lot of media attention to Louisville that week.
3: Interposition. Do we have any rescuers in our midst? Yeah. 13, Mother Day Rescue? Please stand up. Stand up. Come on. Stand up.
0: At the top of the show, we met Eva Zastro, a 19 year old volunteer for Operation Save America and Roy Moore's Senate campaign. She was one of the rescuers, and it was her first rescue, but her parents named her after a very committed veteran rescuer, Eva Edel. Eva
8: Edel, Edel, E D L, Extremely Determined Lady. In German, it's noble. Well, I've been at it for 29 years, okay? My first rescue was in Atlanta in 1988, because when I heard of the abortion clinic, I was unaware because it was all so hush-hush. I saw it on TV and I said, these are the American death camps. And I just asked my husband if he would let me go. Jumped on the bus, and I've been doing it ever since. Eva
0: is 82 years old. She has dark hair and a warm, inviting smile. She's petite, a little shorter than I am. I'm about 5'2". There, there had been a period where less people were doing rescues. Yes. Did, when, what was the gap between the last rescue you did and the one in Louisville? I think
8: it was in Philadelphia, 95. But it was under face, yes, and I still owe a large sum of money. Uh, Well, I guess whoever has it has to pay $137,000, but I don't own anything, so (laughs) I was willing to risk that.
0: Eva Adel told us that she hadn't done any rescues during that time, not because of the FACE Act, but because God had commissioned her to create a sculpture depicting what she said to be the horrors of abortion. And she couldn't work on her sculpture if she continued to be jailed for violating the Face Act or crossing legally recognized buffer zones. But she recently completed it. She says she won't do anything with it until God tells her it's time. So for now, it sits in her garage. But she's free to participate in rescues again. Why did after 22-year hiatus? I'm sorry, 22-year hiatus of doing these rescues. What made you all do this rescue again? What was the discussion like?
8: There were some of us, as far as I know. I've mentioned it often, okay. But um, there were not enough people that I knew of. I I didn't advertise, but I knew I had to do it again. And uh, Louisville, there came the opportunity where some people were willing. Who was the first one that said, we're going to do this rescue? Oh, I don't know. I just talked about it. Maybe I was the culprit. I don't know. You know, I'm just obedient. Mm-hmm. He leadeth me, he leadeth me. That's all.
0: <laughs> Eva Zastro's mother and Cal's wife, Trisha Zastro, is the person who tells us that Eva Adel is her daughter's namesake. She and her husband Cal have also been involved with the group since it was Operation Rescue. I, I did in the early 90s, but then I
4: started having children in 93. So I stayed home and raised them to love Jesus.
0: <laughs> was it, were you ever scared during a rescue?
7: Usually, I was scared before, like driving to it, because you don't know what's happening. But God's grace is sufficient for everything when you do things for Him.
0: Eva Zastro also tells us that she doesn't know whose idea it was to do the rescue or why, though it's clear that it was planned well before the day.
5: You guys like plan ahead, like put cash in your pockets, you know, just in case you were arrested. Um, I actually did.
4: Oh, I had, um, I brought some money in case I could bond out if they, but we were released on our own recognizance, so that was irrelevant.
0: By early July, the Department of Justice still hadn't charged the so-called Mother's Day rescuers with FACE Act violations, and Rusty told Slate that in the past, they'd been charged right away. So he saw this as a positive message from the Trump administration. But shortly after that conversation, the rescuers were charged with face act violations. Rusty told Slate that he blamed the turn of events on the deep state, but that he still believed he had friends in the Trump administration. He added that he believed that Trump and Trump's personal lawyer, Jay Sokolo, were working to expose the shadow government working behind the scenes to maintain their power. Sokolow has a long history representing Operation Rescue and later Operation Save America in lawsuits involving Buffer zones, and FACE Act violations. Nevertheless, the charges against the group affected some of their planned activities in Louisville. Because of the blockade, a judge mandated buffer zones in front of EMW, meaning they couldn't get too close. Rusty and the other rescuers also had to make an appearance in court to discuss issues in their trial.
2: He's
0: on the microphone.
3: Good morning, church.
6: Good
3: morning. Welcome to the day the Lord has made. Amen. We're just going to rejoice and we're just
0: going to be. On that morning, July 24th, Rusty shows up to the federal courthouse in Louisville, Kentucky, greeted by about 100 of his followers and media outlets from all over the country. There's a band of young musicians playing Christian music, and Rusty walks up to them and takes the mic. One of his sons fronts the band. Uh,
3: My son, Josiah, come out here for a minute. I want you to model this t-shirt because honestly this t-shirt and the message carries the message of the day. We're before a human court but it's very important that this message go forth throughout all the earth. I want you to notice what it says. In the days of lawlessness, watch this, those Keep the law, become the outlaw. What happened to my sound? Okay. Because I really it's all right. It's important that we hear that. In the days of lawlessness, those that keep the law become the outlaw. See, the kingdom of God is a funny thing.
0: The crowd is filled with OSA regulars. They're holding their signs with bloody fetuses. Young children are sitting near the band, coloring the sidewalk with chalk. The
3: world thinks that you and I are on trial here today. I got news for the world. We are not the ones on trial here today. The United States of America is on trial here today. And we as Christians are the law keeper. Sophia
0: goes inside the courthouse to cover the hearing, but she can't record in there. So I caught up with her and Eva Zastro during a recess.
5: Okay, so we're here at the Western District Court in Louisville, Kentucky, um, Monday mid-morning. We're here for a hearing in USA versus Rusty Thomas. Um, This is the case that deals with the anti-abortion protesters in front of EMW Women's Surgical Center and the federal government has charged them with violating the FACE Act. It's a preliminary hearing.
0: What's going on in the courthouse?
5: So the hearing opened with two motions. One, the defendants wanted to have the judge recused, and essentially their um, argument was that because he was appointed uh, as a U.S. attorney under the Obama administration, he might have bias in this case. Um, since it 's politically you know uh, a very political case, um, and so that was their argument. The judge said that he didn 't think that their argument had any merit, and so he had denied the motion. The other motion was to have two um, what they call sidewalk counselors who are not affiliated with the defendants um, two Louisville um, counselors who regularly regularly are in front of the abortion clinic and try to get um, women not to go inside. Uh, they want them to be able to intervene into the lawsuit, and the judge hasn't ruled on How's that it yet. How's it going in there? Eva said she doesn't, you don't want to go back in, right? Well,
4: yeah, I just, I'd rather be outside.
0: Yeah. Court. Um.
5: Yeah, it's just, um, so from what I saw, it's just um, Rusty is sitting up at the front, but none of the other, or maybe I saw your dad up there too? I, think, I believe it was Rusty
4: Thomas and our attorney, Vince um, Hauser, and Eva Edel, and then two other sidewalk counselors.
1: Been led to the
7: just as so there's a lot going on
0: outside the courthouse, too. Not by war, too.
7: famine, or disease, but of terrorism on the inside. 56 million voices lost. The word abortion, abortion. is so hush-hush. Don't, Don't kill your, your baby. baby. It's just too much.
0: At first, it's just representatives from Operation Save America, but there are a lot of them, and they maintain their presence there all day. Pro choice groups have been meeting throughout the city as well that week. They were helping to support EMW Women's Surgical Center, the last abortion clinic in Kentucky, during the week long protests that OSA had planned. So I'm kind of surprised that there are no counter protesters there this day. Then three women wearing long red dresses and white bonnets show up
7: the Betsy Riot. It's a group of uh, anarchist suffragettes. We're just here to be a presence in opposition to what's going on here today. They seem to have taken control of the street with uh, little to no pushback from the public. So we're here to just be
5: the face of someone who's not okay with what's going on.
0: Their costumes are based on Margaret Atwood's 1985 dystopian novel, about a patriarchal, totalitarian theocracy where women called handmaids are raped and forced to breed with powerful men. In 2017, Hulu made a serialized drama based on the book. It's a very popular show. It's won a bunch of awards. I'm sure most of our listeners know what The Handmaid's Tale is, so I don't need to go into it too much. But no one from the OSA crowd gets the reference. Here's one of Rusty's daughters, Tora.
4: We don't not hate you. We love you.
0: She's 13, and she didn't know who the women were supposed to be dressed as, which makes sense. But what surprised me was that she and her friends thought that they were just making fun of them, dressing and acting like they do in an attempt to mock them. So I asked Catherine Brightbill about this. She's the woman we spoke to earlier in the episode, who was raised in Operation Rescue but has since left I the could movement. definitely
7: see that um, because... Like the very kind of conservative way that um, women dress in that subculture, which I actually my parents never made us wear all dresses, um, but it a lot of people kind of treat it as a joke that oh haha look at these women wearing their denim jumpers um, and their long hair, and see mockery, um, and it uh, which I think is. Harmful for the girls and young women who are in that environment to see themselves mocked um, because they, it kind of makes, it emphasizes that, yeah, the, what they're taught about how society hates um, them and is out to get them and doesn't like um, Christians. It reinforces that idea. So I can see how they would see those. Handmaid's tail dresses and see it as a mockery. Um, the, interestingly, conversation I've had with um, various um, homeschooled friends uh, was about how all the things about those dresses that would have been considered immodest in our world, that their collarbones are visible, that they're form-fitting enough that you can see um, women's shape, um, there's buttons in the front which would be considered an eye trap because they draw attention to um, woman's bust line so um, like yeah so some a number of uh, friends who've kind of grown up in the world we've all kind of joked about how um, the dresses that the handmaids wear are immodest is um, so to everyone out in the outside world they look like these very um, buttoned down, very modest, very strict dress, but to um, us, we can see where they actually aren't modest enough. But boys could get away with whatever they wanted to wear.
0: Eva zastro the younger Eva, Cal's daughter and volunteer for the Roy Moore campaign, was also homeschooled. I asked her what her experience was like and what her goals are for the future. And you, you were- school right? did your dad and mom teach you or were you part of a homeschool
4: group how did that work? both both and um my mom was the main teacher um dad taught you know fishing I taught and fishing physical class education
1: i taught her sign holding <laughs> class
4: one thing i've seen from homeschooling is you become best friends with your family you become best friends with your brothers and sisters and they're not all the same age as you so um all of me, or all of my siblings and I, we all really enjoy meeting new people, and we enjoy um, people of all ages, not just our age group. That's something we've noticed that you know is not always the case with other young people our age. Is you know it's kind of almost an age segregation some. So,
0: do, do, are you going? Do you have any plans to go to college? Not right
4: now. I don't actually. My heart is elsewhere. God's God's broken my heart for the fatherless, um, the unborn children, but also the special needs and handicapped orphans in Nepal, China, India, all around the world.
0: Homeschooling is very important for many in the evangelical pro-life movement, and everyone we spoke with who was raised in Operation Save America said they were homeschooled. Part of what these girls are taught in homeschool is to be submissive, dutiful wives who have and raise children to follow Christ. In light of the Roy Morris sexual assault and pedophilia allegations, Catherine Brightbill wrote a piece for the LA Times about courtship in the evangelical movement. In it, she writes that it's common for homeschooled teenagers to be courted by much older men. Their parents arrange or approve these courtships, and through homeschooling, they're grooming their daughters to be submissive, obedient wives. The evangelical support for homeschooling and their belief in Christian patriarchy are inextricably linked. ThinkProgress recently reported that in 2011, Roy Moore co-wrote a study course that says women shouldn't run for office and that women's suffrage was a mistake. Rusty also seems to believe that homeschooling is important for ushering in a patriarchy explicitly. There's no misunderstanding. His biography on the Operation Save America website contains a telling passage. It says... Reverend Thomas has a father's mantle and spreads a patriarchal vision to reclaim the masculine identity that has been neutered by the feminization of America. He and his wife Kendra Thomas homeschool 13 children at the Thomas Nations University of Righteousness. That's right. Rusty Thomas homeschools his children and calls that homeschool the Thomas Nations University of Righteousness. He and others believe that their way of life is being threatened by feminism, homosexuality, and multiculturalism. Here's Pastor Dale Socia, another leader at Operation Save America, talking about his rainbow umbrella.
5: I hope Leslie
3: hands bought my umbrella from Noah's Ark. When I saw that umbrella, I said, how dare we surrender the colors of the rainbow yeah, to some yeah, feminist yeah. movement. I don't think so. They didn't invent that.
2: God chose that. God's. So you'll see us out there with them. Because it's not for Satan to take away from you what belongs
3: to God. I'm done with giving the devil ground. That's right. Wherever you put the sole of your feet, it says it's yours.
2: Hallelujah. Amen.
0: Operation Rescue started up in the mid-80s, most of the men in leadership didn't grow up in Operation Rescue or Operation Save America. They chose it, they created it, and now they want us all to live it. Male headship is important in the evangelical movement. It's this idea that since Jesus is the head of the church, men should be the head of the household and women should be submissive, obedient wives. Many of these men's testimonies have something in common the mistreatment or desired mistreatment of women. A testimony is basically someone's personal story about how they found Christianity and were born again. Rusty's testimony begins when he's a teenager.
3: Pretty much this is how my testimony, as I told you ladies, uh, I was raised on the mean streets of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, 90% of my neighborhood was black and Puerto Rican. Uh, I was white, didn't go over very well. Um, So fighting to survive was a way of life.
0: After the opening night rally in Kentucky, we introduce ourselves to Rusty and we tell him we'll be around all week, but that we'd also love to ask him a few questions then. He says he's a few minutes, but he's very busy and he leads us to the church basement. It was really loud in the church. I was packed from earlier that night. There were kids running around everywhere. So we were really just looking for a quiet spot. But the only room open is the nursery. Rusty makes a comment that it's fitting that we're in the nursery, given that this is an interview on OSA's attempt to close down the last clinic in Kentucky. But that's only a fraction of what we talk about in that nursery. The only chair for an adult is a rocking chair, and Rusty sits there, and Sophia and I sit in these desk chairs that were made for children no older than five or six. So we look a little ridiculous. Um, And Rusty starts by telling us his testimony, how he gets involved in the movement.
3: Uh, My dad was a hardcore marine atheist. Um, He was a drunkard, a womanizer, a gambler. Uh, My mother, bless her heart, was uh, a hypochondriac and because my dad abandoned his responsibilities to her, uh, she was lonely. uh, She did a lot of negative things to try to get attention from my dad and I would say I was demonized. Um, And what I mean by that, if I wasn't beaten up on flesh and blood, I was literally smashing my own face and head against brick walls, screaming in torment. Whatever it was that was eating me alive on the inside, I wanted out. Give me a pill, put a gun to my head, send me to a psychiatrist. I don't know, but whatever this is, I can't handle it. It's destroying me. And and as as I look back now, that probably was my prayer. It was my prayer, it was my cry. Uh, uh, I'm dying, I'm hurting. And honestly, I had murder in my heart. I was filled with rage. And, and when God intervened, right before he intervened, I was literally plotting uh, the murder of my mother. She was a hypochondriac, so she would feign sickness and disease so people could feel sorry for her, so she can get some attention that she wanted from my dad and he wouldn't give it to her. And so she would just complain, bitterly complain. And we were kids, and we just got lashed day in, day out. I, I wanted to choke her. I needed relief And you know what I mean I just did you're like you're killing me woman with this stuff you know what I mean so I'm just thinking how do I get out from underneath this so I think man I'll, I'll take her out you know I mean honestly it was it was survival I, I mean, honestly it was just I, I needed to survive this you know so I figured the best way is to get rid of her and then maybe the, the torment would go away
0: So Rusty ends up converting to Christianity after he finds out his 16-year-old cousin is pregnant. He travels from Bridgeport, Connecticut to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where she lives. And he's planning to beat up the boy who got her pregnant. But when he goes to punch him, he says a brick wall of air stops him. The boy said he was protected by Jesus Christ. And then took Rusty to his home where Rusty was evangelized by this boy's family. So at this point, Rusty's a Christian. He goes to Los Angeles. He tries to become an actor. But then he says that God called him to leave acting and focus on his ministry full time. And he's been spreading the word of his God and fighting against LGBTQ rights and abortion rights ever since.
3: And Jen, please hear me what I'm saying to you. This, and this is my warning, and I'm, I'm record this. Because if we fail in convincing the states to exercise the doctrine of the lesser magistrate and say no to the federal beast when they are devouring their own citizens, okay, whether it's abortion, legalizing sodomy, or taxation to death, it doesn't make a difference. If they don't say no to that, and they go along to get along, guess where this battle then falls to? We, the people. Study history. Study history. Now, this is really important what I'm saying to you. Because once tyranny gets to that point, and there's no checks and balances, and it falls to we, the people, that's when it gets bloody. And that we do not want to see happen. So believe me, whether you may not be in agreement with me about abortion or homosexuality, but I am telling you, I know the Bible and I know history. And I see where we're at. And I'm telling you, if we are not successful in convincing governors and legislatures to put the chain, the constitutional chain, back on that federal government, if they fail to do this, then this tyranny falls upon we the people. And that historically, I am telling you, produces the revolution. And that's when you have blood in the streets. I don't know about you, Jen. I don't want to see that happen. I have children and I have grandchildren. I do not want to see that's happening. And that's why what we're doing is so crucial and vital to our survival as a people, that we have an opportunity to correct this without shedding blood.
0: Rusty believes that homosexuality and abortion are crimes in the eyes of God, big crimes. And the fact that the government allows them is tyranny against God. He believes that we are so divided as a nation because God is punishing us for allowing homosexuality and abortion. And here he is telling us that unless the government starts enforcing biblical law, there will be a bloody civil war. This is why Rusty has championed Matt Truella. Remember, Matt Truella is one of the signatories of the justifiable homicide statement. Well, he self-published a book called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate. We will talk about it much more in the next episode, but it's basically a guidebook for defying the federal government to defend God's law. Only his and Rusty's interpretation of God is one who hates Muslims, homosexuality, and autonomous women, particularly those in positions of power. Here's Rusty again, addressing his congregation on a night that Sophia and I were present. What is the
3: culmination of a nation under judgment when their sayings and doings are against the Lord. Well, you can find it in verse 12 and it's not pretty. Ask for my people, and this is going to go over really well with the feminists in our midst. Ask for my people. Children are their oppressors. Anybody besides me have a little concern for the youth culture we're raising yes. in the United States yes. of America? Oh, yeah. yes. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Do you ever see like these interviews, like this, you know, the, where they're talking to our young people about anything? <laughs> about history about any important topic? Do you hear what's coming out of their mouth? Do you realize we're raising a generation of young people that actually need safe places in college? Yes. Because they can't handle an opinion that's contrary to them? And these are going to be our future leaders, by the way. Folks, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. It says, children will be your oppressors. Now watch this. And women will rule over you. Now America, we think we're so progressive. We're so enlightened. You know? And little do we know that when we exchange patriarchy for feminism, guess what? According to God's word, you're not enlightened. You're not progressive. You're falling deeper and deeper into God's curse and judgment upon you. And it's a harbinger of greater woe that is to come.
0: So, this man who's basically saying that feminism is an early sign of the apocalypse is championing a self published text by a man who believes in the justifiable homicide of abortion providers. Yeah, and I think it's also worth mentioning here that Matt Truella has a similar
5: story to Rusty's about how he got involved in this movement. So Matt started the website LesserMagistrate.com a few years ago to promote his book, and that's where I found a written testimony he published, actually last year, on the day he refers to as the 38th anniversary of his, quote, born-again birth date, the day he came to know Jesus Christ. So in this testimony, Matt writes about what sounds like a troubled youth, filled with fighting and drug use and beatings from his dad. He grew up in Detroit, and he describes hating black people. He uses the word hate, in part because he felt like a minority as a white person in Detroit, and in part also because of bad experiences he said he had with other black kids. Anyway, he writes that he was charged with arson at the age of 17 and spent a few days in county jail, which is where he went to this Christian drug rehab program, and finally that's what led to his ultimate conversion. But what's so striking to me in this text is the contempt that he expresses for his mother. He writes that he lost respect for his mom after his parents got divorced when Matt was only 11. He explains that she threw him out of the house when he was 15 for dealing drugs. And after unsuccessfully trying to live with his father, he comes home to his mom, and I mean, just listen to this line. Quote, I stood outside for a while. I hadn't seen her in six months. I thought, now I'll have to put up with her mouth again. That's the end of the quote. So later, at age 17, during an acid trip, and a particularly low point for Matt, he writes about having a strong urge to take a knife and kill his mother and his sister, and then to run down the street and kill anyone in sight. And I bring all this up because, you know, this is the man who wrote the book that brought Operation Save America to Kentucky. And with Operation Save America's help, Matt has been bringing this book to lawmakers and government officials all over the country.
3: About six months ago, I was approached about coming here. Actually, even a little bit before that, maybe about eight months ago, we were approached about coming to Kentucky, it was a Macedonian call, it had a professor, great brother in the Lord, uh, uh, David Street. I don't know if he's even here tonight, he's he's is it downstairs, bless you David, but he's the one who put the bug in my ear, Lord. would you consider coming to Kentucky, and I said well brother I'll certainly pray about it, put it in the hopper and, yeah. and we'll just see. But I, I will. I will pray. I will sing quote. And, uh, you know, the more we kind of looked at things and monitoring what's happening in the United States of America, it seemed like every indicator was Kentucky. It seemed like all the pieces of the puzzle were falling together uh, in Kentucky. And so right after uh, Brother David... Shared that with me. I went up to Wisconsin and I met with pastor Matt. Well, who was going to be with us Monday night hallelujah and uh, We were sitting down and we were actually working on another project and I shared with him about the possibility of us coming to Kentucky I'm really seriously thinking about doing this brother. I want your help partnership you. And so I shared the vision with him and the very next day We're together sitting in the living room and we get a phone call and he picks up the phone, you know Maxwell here It's a congressman from the state of Kentucky Kentucky, Who orders as Joseph said two thousand doctrine of the lesser Magistrate books So the day before, it's the first time I'm communicating. We're coming to Kentucky. We're going to do this. The very next day, ding, 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 second-fold witness. He orders 2,000 books, and he spreads it in the church world and throughout the state government, government of Kentucky. Governor Bevan has read the book. He has praised the book. He has quoted from the book in his official speeches to the state of Kentucky. Hmm. And I want you to know, as we're coming into Kentucky, brothers and sisters, just know, there's a lot of things that the media is showing, but there's a whole lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that nobody has no idea. When I tell you we are hitting this from every possible angle, I am telling you we are hitting this from every Possible angle. Mercy ministries,
0: prophetic ministries, working within the state government. Pastor Joseph Spurgeon is a local leader with Operation Save America in southern Indiana and in Kentucky. He helped Rusty set up the events in Louisville. Joseph says that him and others in Kentucky begged Rusty to come down to Louisville for the national event because the city was being taken over by crime, which they blame on the abortion clinic and the city's reputation for being LGBTQ-friendly. In
2: 2016, Louisville had the record high of criminal homicides, not counting the murder of pre-born. In 2007, they are, seventeen. they are already on the pace to break that record. Illicit drug use with heroin epidemic is ravaging communities in Kentucky. These are the same communities sending their women to the abortion bill. In addition, Louisville, Kentucky, has decided to parade its sin, parade sodomy, throughout its city. In a news report, Louisville was ranked the 11th, 11, the 11th among all the cities in the U.S. for population of those enslaved to sodomy. The same report said this about the Louisville Metro Council: the Louisville Metro Council and tourism officials are working with groups to attract more lesbian, gay bisexual, transgender, pedophilia, and all, all the rest. I always add those to the, end, uh, to the city.
0: Ultimately, it was the doctrine of the lesser magistrate that made Rusty decide to come here, but they still had other goals. Rusty instructed his followers to disperse across the city, sharing their anti-abortion, anti-gay, anti-Muslim you message. Me. When
3: you're dealing They're gathering together. Man, they're locked. Do you actually believe they're going to be listening to us or ministering and they're, they're going to receive the gospel right then and there? How many know that ain't happening? Now, you get them away from the crowd and you get them alone and you can have a conversation. But how many know they got each other's backs? They do. In fact, if they are, you see one of them start to even listen to what you have to say, believe me, they're going to run and grab them. They don't want anybody defected from their camp. Right. Now, listen, you know how I want you, I want you to treat the pro courts? For the most part, I want you to ignore them. Right. Amen. If you can, listen, if you can, if God gives you the opportunity, show them a loving and
0: kind act. They set up a tent in downtown Louisville where people signed up to pray and sing. And one day they projected a giant video, which they said was of an abortion. But they also focused their efforts on Kentucky's last clinic, EMW Women's Surgical Center.
8: Justice, you want to sing with me today?
2: Not yet. Well, this is my little buddy Justice. He's five years
3: old, and he is a gift from God. And you guys should be ashamed of yourself, because if mama wanted to
2: kill him, you would help her kill him. That's the, that is despicable. You're not, you're not
1: gonna, I can not, see why you're not very it happy. Shameful. It is shameful to murder babies. Please.
0: One of the clinic escorts who's there that day tells Rewire that she's alarmed by the messages of hate the children seem to be absorbing.
7: Um, Yesterday, on Thursday, the kids were used to... Um, Uh, They were lined up in front of the escorts and told to pray very aggressively And that stood out because I took a picture of one kid who was just glaring at an escort with this Hatred and he's like eight and he doesn't even know why Any of this is happening, but he's kind of brainwashed to just hate this person. He doesn't even know because of this issue Um, And that, that almost made me cry
0: While, as Rusty put it, the eyes of the world were on Louisville, Kentucky, and the media focused on what was happening at the clinic and around town, Operation Save America's leadership was working to get its word out to lawmakers, and their successes might surprise you. More to come on Part 2 of Marching Toward Gilead. Marching Toward Gilead was produced by myself, Jen Stanley, and Sophia Resnick for Rewire Radio. Mark Filetti, executive, produced this episode. We had some reporting and reporting help from Andrew Viegas, Rachel London, and Kelly Benjamin. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for this episode is by Doug Helsel. Thank you to all the staff at Rewire, especially Rachel Perrone, Lauren Gutierrez, and Stacey Burns, our communications and social media team, for getting the word out about Choiceless. For more on the story, including photos and links, Visit our website at rewire.news/slash choiceless. Thanks for listening.